This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for June 18th, 2018. Scott Pruitt is President Trump's controversial, to say the least, administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. There's been a lot of concentration on his spending habits, his conflicts of interest, secrecy and management style. But today I want to talk about some of the work that he's actually doing. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Make your view heard and get it included in the next show. Email your opinion to podcast at challengingopinions.com and we can discuss it in the next podcast. On a Skype line now, I have Mike Ludwig. Mike is a reporter with truthout.org. Mike, you've been writing about Scott Pruitt. Um, he's not really a hippie, is he? No, he's definitely, he's probably the opposite of a hippie. You, you uh, don't are... really think he spent his youth with long hair, smoking dope, and, you know, living in communes, no? Probably not. I mean, and if he did, then something has definitely changed. Um, you were writing about how he has taken, and we should say for the people who don't know anybody who's been living under a rock, Scott Pruitt is uh, President Trump's nominee to be head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And you've been writing, Scott, about new rules that he's been bringing in. Can you give us the uh, elevator pitch on that? Well, Scott Pruitt's been doing a lot at the EPA ever since he's been confirmed. He's been trying to roll back pretty much every new regulation, environmental protection that was rolled out under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. But one of the initiatives he's taken up pretty much at the behest of other Republicans who are supported by the oil and gas and chemical industries is a proposed transparency rule, which would require um, a certain amount of information about certain studies that are used to make regulatory decisions to be made available to the public mm-hmm. in order for regulators to use those studies in the first place. Yeah, hold, hold on to that for a second, because in general, you know, I think I'll put my own cards on the table. I think the EPA is something that we need, and I'm a bit skeptical about Scott Pruitt, to be honest. But it seems like this new regulation says that if the EPA is using research in order, for example, to ban a chemical that they say shouldn't be used in agriculture or shouldn't be used in the food chain, then that research has to be open and public. If somebody was regulating my industry and they came along and said, oh, well, we're going to ban some practice that you're going to do, and we have this research that proves that it's dangerous, but it's secret and we don't want to tell you what it is, I'd be kind of suspicious about that. Isn't that a reasonable regulation? It sure sounds like it, right? And I think when it was first brought up in Congress, it kind of slipped under the radar because it does sound sound kind of common sense, right? If you're going to mm-hmm. use research to make public policy decisions, the data behind that research should be available to the public. Uh, but the reason why it never went anywhere in Congress and the reason why scientists and environmental groups um, and researchers are opposed to this rule, it was it would actually 
severely limit the number of studies that could be used to make these kind of decisions because of the general um, privacy concerns around environmental health data. I mean, when you're researching people who've been impacted by pollution or maybe disease or something like that, you're often taking personal information, personal mm -hmm. anecdotes. And uh, some of these studies, the way they're structured, that information has to remain, um, you know, it has to remain confidential. So, so, what so you're talking about something here, somebody saying, uh, I had some exposure to this chemical and here's all my personal medical problems that I've had following on from that. Absolutely right. And, you know, what, what the concern is, is that that study that that person was a part of would just be unavailable for regulators to use because it contained that personal information and it would not be able to meet the transparency requirements that Pruitt is proposing here. And so could, the could fear it be is anonymized? That, um, I think that there has been a debate about that among scientists, but what my understanding is, is the concern is that this rule is written so broadly that it wouldn't allow it either either that anonymization would be too expensive, that still there'd be some studies that'd be unavailable, yeah. or it's just so broad that regardless of of that anonymous data, I mean, because they're not talking about they're not talking about the data that's in the study. I mean, that's already available. It's like the data behind that names, addresses, places where people live. I mean, that's the kind of depth talking about getting into here and it's because you know industries dispute these studies you know an industry will say well actually my chemical isn't hurting people prove it and if that information was taken as part of a confidential survey all of a sudden it's not you know something that, that regulators can use and that's where this gets tricky right it's 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 you know on the surface we all love transparency but when it gets down to actually the way the scientists use data to make these decisions it gets into some actually really really old battles between regulators and the industries that they're trying to contain and and prevent from hurting people as you understand this regulation if for example a database was edited to say instead of mike ludwig had some horrible disfiguring disease we could just say subject one two three had this disease subject one two four had a different disease are you saying that that would not then meet the disclosure requirements because we didn't know the name or some other personal details of the of the uh, person involved you know it might but what the scientists who are concerned about this proposal are saying is going back to do that is going to be really expensive um, and it may prevent researchers from doing the research in the first place unless they have the money to do that extra work. I mean, mm. they're worried about creating more red tape for scientists to do this type of thing and for it to be able to be used by the government. I'm going to put, um, my, nerds on. Be... I'm going to put my nerds hat on for a moment. And clearly, you know, going backwards, you can see how if somebody had just taken notes, you can see that those notes might have mixed in personal information with uh, important research information. But going forward, don't you think it's just kind of good practice for researchers to store that information in an organized database whereby they can maybe take out the columns that have uh, people's names or addresses and replace it with a, an ID number and keep uh, keep their information well organized? And maybe that is what will end up happening from this, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't do environmental health studies, I read them, right. Mm -hmm. So I think that the questions you're asking me is actually probably being debated by researchers right now. And maybe if you do see, um, you know, maybe scientists will end up saying, hey, this data is still powerful, we want it to be able to be used by the government, we know that 
the industry through its conduits in the Republican Party and then in the EPA, Pruitt and the Republicans who who introduced this as a legislative initiative, they want this transparency. And maybe they'll be able to say, hey, you know what, maybe we can anonymize this data and say, hey, look, you still can't you still can't, um, you know, try to discredit us mm-hmm. now that we've done this. So maybe in the future you will see scientists doing that more often. Well, I think what they're concerned is is that some landmark studies that have been used over and over and over again to, for example, reduce the amount of air pollution that comes out of power plants or out of out of car exhaust, mm-hmm. those those studies that have been around for twenty years will all of a sudden be taken off the table because for them to um, become you know, for them to be able to be used under this proposition, mm-hmm. they would have to go back and anonymize that all retroactively. They'd have to do all so that. So that might be that editing by hand hundreds or thousands of records. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big that's a big concern. And the, why this would be a win for the industry is then here's this landmark study on air pollution that shows that sulfur dioxide can cause asthma or something like this. I'm making up an example. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that landmark study that's been used over and over and over again gets taken off the table because no one has the money at the moment to go back and anonymize all that data. Okay. You then, I, I was kind of being a little bit skeptical when I was reading your article, but you then went on to say that actually the data that pharmaceutical companies or chemical companies need to present in order to get their pesticides and herbicides and uh, fertilizers and so forth approved, that's not going to have nearly the same requirements. Right. And I think that's what is frustrating environmentalists right now is that if Pruitt is so concerned about transparency, why wouldn't he require the same transparency from the industry as he is requiring from independent environmental health researchers with this proposed rule? And I, I think what they're trying to point out is, is that he's not really interested in transparency. He's interested in creating leverage for polluters that he's supposed to regulate. Now, is that what he's really trying to do? I don't know. I have the general impression that the Trump administration and people like, and and, and Pruitt in particular, who's moved very, very swiftly to roll back regulations, so swiftly, in fact, that courts have um, blocked him over and over and over again, basically for doing it sloppily and not for following the rules. He is in such a politically charged rush that he may just be taking policy proposals from his various backers or from uh, 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 you know, co- congressmen within the party and just rubber stamping them into policy. And so I don't actually know what his intentions are, but what the environmental groups here are trying to point out is, is there is a bit of hypocrisy where the amount of transparency he'd be asking of these public health studies would not be... Um, would not would not translate over to pesticide companies, right? Because pesticide companies, in the United States at least, present much of their own research in order to justify the safety of their products. And then the uh, regulators look at that and they maybe look at any independent data that may or may not exist and they try to make a decision. Um, but once that is included in, in a licensing decision, that information is then vulnerable to freedom of information requests. At some point, I mean, um, I actually, you know, some of the folks I talked to said they were having problems, right? Getting that information out of the government under the Freedom of Information Act because it's considered proprietary. And and I guess that would be the, you know, maybe that would be the argument here is that we can pay, place transparency regulations on public health studies by independent researchers, but we wouldn't want to do that to the industry because we don't want them to 
to give up proprietary business information that could uh, you know, make them lose a competitive advantage. I guess you'd have to ask yourself, what is more important, proprietary business information and a company maintaining a competitive advantage or ensuring that their product isn't going to hurt people. Um, one thing I have to say, reading through your article, and it's, it's very well informed, and I'll put a link to it in the notes for this podcast, but it strikes me that since the 1950s, probably 1960s, there has been an explosion in the productivity of agriculture in the Western world, and actually in the whole world. And even though our the population of the planet has probably quadrupled. We do not have the famines that were predicted in the 1950s because of the productivity of agriculture, and that comes largely from artificial fertilizers, artificial pesticides, and artificial herbicides. Don't you think these poor, put-upon pharmaceutical and chemical companies who are slaving away trying to feed the world, don't you think they might feel a little bit uh, a little bit wronged by all these evil environmentalists who are trying to stop their good work? I think the pesticide debate is actually really tricky because they're, they're, the environmentalists are often hardline, where they just kind of oppose pesticides you know, across the board and any expansion of the industry. And mm -hmm. also the industry itself, and this is something that I've done a lot of reporting on, is very wealthy and powerful and is able to have a lot of influence over the government and over the regulators who are supposed to keep them in check. And as a result, what we've seen over and over again is, is that pesticides that have unintended consequences stay in the market for longer periods of time, particularly in the United States. Europe is usually ahead of limiting and restricting the use of pesticides in the United States is. But they stay in the market for a while, and there's unintended consequences, either it's to public health or it's to the environment. Now, it's true that we have an agricultural system that, uh, that can feed more people than ever before because of this technology that has developed throughout the 20th century. I think the real question we need to ask ourselves is that a sustainable way to continue to to living and eating for the future. I mean, I live in um, uh, Louisiana, where runoff from the massive agricultural fields in the breadbasket of the United States comes right back down the Mississippi River, past the same refineries where it was often created, and then into the Gulf and creates a dead zone where literally nothing can live. And it's not necessarily pesticides, but it's other, you know, chemical additives to the industrial agriculture process. Uh, pause, on, pause on that for a so second, because, no, 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 Mike, because you say adding chemicals, and there's sort of a scary feel, feel about the word chemicals. Um, I read recently the Royal Chemical Society, the, excuse me, the Royal Chemistry Society in the UK, which is a centuries-old body, a scientific body. They have offered a one million pound, that's about a million and a half dollars, a one million pound prize for anyone who can bring to them a handful of any substance that is chemical-free. Chemicals are just everything around us, aren't they? Absolutely, but chemistry is what you do with it. And um, it's important to keep, you know, for-profit, massive international companies that have a history of harming people with poisons. And I'm talking about Bayer, I'm talking Monsanto, I'm talking about these companies that go back to making chemical weapons in World mm -hmm. War II. I think it's important to hold them accountable because you're right. I am made of chemicals, you are made of chemicals. Those nitrates and phosphates that I was just talking about going down the Mississippi River, those are chemicals that are very similar to the same natural ones that are found on, on naturally in the soil. But we put more into our agricultural system in order to 
artificially uh, uh, allow the growth of more of more crops, and then mm-hmm. those extra nitrates and phosphates end up causing a dead zone. So there is these unintended consequences to industrialized agriculture. And the big question is, is how do we use chemistry and technology to make these processes, you know, more sustainable? Um, I don't know. That's the big debate. Mike Ludwig, reporter for truthout.org. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See challengingopinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to Mike's article. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Mike Ludwig at Ludwig underscore Mike, and get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.changingopinions.com. And I now have a Patreon account, and special thanks to Matt Howard, who signed up as a patron since the last podcast. So if you'd like to support the podcast with a small donation either each month or for each podcast, I'd really appreciate that. All the details are on the website. Coming up next Monday, that's June 25th, I'll be talking to the Professor of History at Emporia State University, Gregory Schneider, about the history of American conservatism. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.